Holy Father, you are our comfort. Your spirit lives within us. And you go before us and you prepare a way through the valleys of the shadow of death, through the seas you split in two, so we may walk on dry land. And Lord, you lead us to green pastures and still waters, and you restore our souls. God, help us to receive your word this morning. God, please open our our eyes to see what you're showing us, our ears to hear the words that you're speaking to our heart and our hearts to be molded after your ways. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, uh, sorry, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's what Paul sounded like. (laughs) Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Teaching them the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. And the congregation replies, thanks be to God. So I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever been on a road trip and and you're going towards a big city? And as you approach the city, you can kind of see the skyline. And it looks magnificent, the giant buildings. And you start to get excited. And you have this sense of, of urgency to reach your destination. This excitement of the city that you're about to enter. You ever been there? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Good. Like... Like this kind of view, right? Anybody know where that is? Yeah, Las Vegas. Las Vegas, baby. You know, Mark knows that place. Ocean City. It's not Ocean City. <laughs> uh, no, Las Vegas, right? And so one time I went on a family vacation to Las Vegas, as you do, as a child. And um, we wanted to see the Grand Canyon, right? And kind of some of those, those outdoorsy things, right? That was my family. And so we were so excited as a little child to see the Grand Canyon. But we also went to Las Vegas and went to the Strip which I always thought there has to be a euphemism for that name. Like that can't just be the normal natural name, yet I think it is. Um, and so one day I'm walking with my dad down the street on the strip, and that's, that's kind of like the main area. That, that's the strip, right? The main area in downtown Las Vegas. And uh, we're walking down the street, and uh, this seemingly nice guy grabs me and starts talking to me. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm 10 years old actually, so I'm like, all right, cool. And he starts giving me these cards, these trading cards. And I'm like, oh, sweet. <laughs> Free baseball cards, right? Babe Ruth, you know? And um, 
Then I look at these cards and my dad like starts to freak out. And I'm like, what? These cards were not Babe Ruth. Uh, They were not baseball cards. They were not Yu-Gi-Oh cards or Pokemon cards. In fact, these cards were, um, they they were cards of courtesans and exotic dancers. And um, a man giving these out to little children on the street. Boy, was I wrong. And in that moment, the excitement of seeing this grand city and coming into this magnificent area was confronted with reality. In the city that had been built around meeting the broken desires of people's hearts, I was now in the midst of. The light from the city that shined brightly in the night masked the darkness that pervades that city. And today we join Paul in Corinth around AD 49, AD 49, AD 50. And we, he had just left Athens, kind of to the right of that red circle is Athens. And now we're in Corinth. And if you can see Corinth, at the top northern part of Corinth, there's seas that meet the city on both sides. So you have this tiny sliver of land, and that's like kind of downtown Corinth. And so Corinth is built with ports on both the east and the west. And uh, it, it was a port city, but it was also the largest and most cosmopolitan city in all of Greece in Paul's day. And so Paul's arrived in this city, and you think that he's coming from Athens. We had his speech last week where he preaches you know, to the Areopagus and says that God has determined the times and places of people so that they might seek him and perhaps find him. And then Paul, you know, he knows Jesus' words. He has seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he's coming to Corinth, and he sees the skyline as he's journeying towards the city. And he must be thinking, wow, when Jesus says you are to be a light to this world, when Jesus says you are a light of the world, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul knows those words. And he's approaching the city and he sees the light shining as he's approaching. And he must be thinking, this is my chance. In Athens, things didn't necessarily go as planned. This is my chance to be a light to the world. And he comes into the city. And the thing that's crazy about Corinth is that similar to Athens, it has a big hill overlooking the city. And there's a mini city on top of that hill overlooking Corinth. And so Paul comes to this city, and there's already a city built on the hill. And that city is called Acro-Corinth, literally meaning High Corinth. And you know what's built on top of that hill? A grandiose temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And you know what fills that temple? Male and female prostitutes. And so Paul comes to Corinth with great dreams and desires of how God is going to use him to spread the message of the gospel. But the city he comes to spend time in is a port city filled with sailors and people getting rich off of commerce. It's a city dedicated to sexual love, physical desires, not intimacy, not committed relationships. People spending money to sleep with male and female prostitutes on top of a hill that overlooks the city. And that culture pervaded the city. There was literally, well, let me give you guys a a quote from a philosopher of that day. 
Oh, sorry. This is the city of Corinth. That is the, the, uh, the Acro-Corinth, the city on the hill, Temple of Aphrodite. And um, this is a quote. It says, The sacred hill city of Aphrodite, overlooking Corinth, there, on account of the multitude of courtesans, read prostitutes, who were sacred to Aphrodite, outsiders resorted, read vacationed, in great numbers and kept holiday. And the merchants and soldiers who went there squandered all their money, so that the, pro- the following proverb arose in reference to them. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. This was Euripides. And, and the city of Corinth, a term literally was made uh, by the Greek people of that day that literally meant to live like a Corinthian, and colloquially, colloquially it meant to live immorally. So can you guys imagine there being a verb, a literal verb that was created to describe the way that you live in Radford? Wow. Like I'm just out here Radfordizing, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just out here Roanoking it. <laughs> like that's how people describe this place. Wow. New verbs to describe the way that you live immorally in that city. Any, any wife whose husband is a sailor or a soldier and is traveling, is praying to whatever God she believes in that he does not go to Corinth. Because he'll waste their money, he'll probably have new children with someone else, and he will destroy their family. This is the setting that Paul finds himself in, with great hopes and dreams as he enters the city, and he gets into the city, and this is the culture. He has gone ahead of the rest of his missionary team. He's entered the city alone. And he doesn't have financial support because Paul and Silas are getting that support. And so he begins working on his trade as a tent maker. And Paul is asking people here to give up pleasure and money, the things that defined this city, and to seek Jesus. And a city like Corinth, that is a big calling and a daunting task. And if I was him, I would already be feeling defeated. Yet God shows up. The words of his last sermon in Athens, that the Lord has appointed people's times in history and the boundaries in their lands that they inhabit in order that they might seek God. Those words that Paul spoke seem to be enacted in his time in Corinth. Why? He comes here alone without money, and who does he meet? Priscilla and Aquila. A man and a woman who are also Jews like Paul, but also Christians like Paul, who are also fleeing to Corinth from Rome because the, uh, the ruler there has kicked out every Jewish Christian because of persecution. And so they are leaving and fleeing their home. They come to Corinth, and then they meet Paul. And so Paul comes to this place where he's already got to be feeling alone and just faced with immense challenges. And God has put Priscilla and Aquila there to meet him where he's at and live life together. So they share their faith in the workplace together, in the... In the uh, the marketplace, right over there. They live together. Paul has a place to stay. God actually sets up times and places that they might share space together. And I think about people who I've lived with, who Malia and I have lived with, people like Kerrigan in Asia, and, and lots of other of you guys too. But uh, <laughs> the bonds that we formed, yeah. that these women are my sisters. Yeah. They're my blood. And I think about Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. And the bonds that they formed through hardship, God shows up. 
And I think about people God has put in my life through unforeseen circumstances at just the time I absolutely needed them. I think about my friendship with Cameron. I think about my friendship with Cameron that we would not have met each other if it wasn't for Jesus. And he came into my life at just the right time and in an unexpected fashion. And now he's one of my best friends. It's amazing. I think about a couple named uh, Brian and Hannah who lost their twin boys around the same time that Malia and I lost Sophia. And we met at a, um, a, a, a candle vigil. And God put them just the right time in our lives to have people who understand exactly what we're feeling and going through. Yeah. To be, you know, those who comfort, those who are mourning to one another. Mm-hmm. To experience God's blessedness on earth as it is in heaven. I think about God, you know, I, I want you guys to think about people God has put in your life right now for the season that you are in at exactly the right time that you might perhaps seek him and find him where you are despite the darkness. Mm-hmm. And so we have Paul finding himself empowered by their presence and he's sharing the good news of Jesus in the marketplace and on the, you know, on, on the Sabbaths in the synagogue. And seemed, things seem to be going well. And then Silas and Timothy show up and they, they have the financial support. So he's able to exclusively devote himself to preaching the gospel in the synagogue, probably, and the marketplace as well. And so things are on the up and up, right? He's on the come up. Things are going well. But then what happens? The Jewish people start becoming abusive towards him. And they went beyond rejecting his words to actively and physically opposing him. And at this point, Paul must be so frustrated and so discouraged. He came in feeling alone and God showed up. God showed up extra with financial support. He's able to do exactly what he wants to do and loves to do full time. And then he's faced with defeat and rejection. It must be a hard time for him. And the words of Ezekiel come to Paul. And Paul seems to quote the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, verses 6 and 7. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning for me. And Ezekiel 3 has a very similar passage. And, and in Paul's view, he has done the right thing. Yeah. He's been devoting himself to preaching the gospel exclusively. And he has warned the people of the kingdom of God being available now and that Jesus is the king. Mm-hmm. The spiritual battle for their city has begun and they must pick a side. But they have deliberately chosen the wrong side. And so Paul does as Jesus told his disciples to do. And God told Ezekiel, he shakes the dust off himself and he shares with them the warning from God. And this is all correct. This is the right thing to do. But Paul seems to take rejection personally. Mm, Not only does he warn them, not only does he cleanse his hands of their blood metaphorically, but he exclaims, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. He brings in I statements. I'm innocent of it. In essence, he says, bump you. I'm done with you guys. You guys don't know what I've been through. I'm serving you. This is how you treat me. I'm done. Paul takes the rejection 
personally. And I know for me, when I feel rejection, my natural response is to isolate myself emotionally. My natural response is to become internally critical. And I feel this particularly if I plan events or gatherings and I feel like people just don't care or they don't show up. I take it personally. As if people don't care about me. As if they don't want to show up for me. I start in my head using I statements. Like I'm the one that's undesirable. And then what happens is I become less vulnerable with those people. My heart becomes more calloused. Meaning my heart puts walls between me and others. So I don't have to be hurt by others, but I also don't have to engage vulnerably with others. And so my relationships start to struggle a little bit more. I lose the ability to have intimacy with those people. My relationships become more uh, cold, less vulnerable. Yeah. And you know what that does? It's a, it's a killer cycle that makes it even harder for others to actually feel what I feel. Others pull away from me as I pull away from them. Can you relate to any of this? And I think people generally have three sorts of reactions in a place like Corinth. The first, I think people see their surroundings and they think that doesn't look that bad. You know, doing that does seem like it would make me feel more alive. You know, all my friends are doing that. All my friends are dressing like that. All my friends are trying that. It won't matter if I do it a little bit too. Or just this one time, let me just explore a little bit about who I am. And one compromise leads to another and another. Like gambling, you get drawn in and it takes everything from you. And this is the people of Corinth. The second sort of person, I think, is those who, uh, who live in an area and they seclude themselves off from their evil surroundings. They don't do all the bad things. But internally, they become incredibly arrogant. They compare themselves to their neighbors and their hearts become hard as well. No one can be as good as them because no one else is making the sacrifices they're making. No one understands how hard it is for you to say no to temptation day after day. So you feel as if you are better than others because you do say no to temptation day after day. And therefore, you do deserve better from them and better than them. And when someone comes in and offers you another perspective that would change the way of your thinking, you react harshly to them. Mm -hmm. And this is the Jews in the synagogue at Corinth. And the third type of person are those like Paul here, whose heart's desire is truly to resist temptation and engage with others. He isn't trying to see himself as better. He isn't trying to hide from those who are different from him. He is sharing the gospel, spending time with people who are different than him and being vulnerable in the process. But even for people like Paul here, enough rejection will turn you into a person who takes rejection personally. And then you might start to lash out once in a while. Your heart might become a little bit calloused and a little less vulnerable. And in this case, you might even cite scripture to defend why you say and feel the things that you do. In essence, defending yourself. And I ask you, what type of person are you at this moment? Are you someone who has been making compromises spiritually? 
Have you started living like your friends in the world live? Or are you more secluded from your neighbors? Do you have a few close friends who affirm your thoughts and feelings, but don't necessarily push you to change or reach out to others? Do you feel justified and content in your personal spirituality? Or do you feel hurt by others right now? Do you feel as if you want to give up on them because they keep hurting you? Have you slowly but surely stopped being vulnerable and opening your heart to others? Stop sacrificing for others? I think we all fall into one of these three categories in any season in our lives. But here's the crazy part. Even in Paul's anger and frustration, even when he starts taking things personally, God shows up. God puts the exact people he needs for encouragement and perseverance in his life in that moment. When he comes into the city without financial support, God puts Priscilla and Aquila there. When the synagogue doesn't work out and they start being abusive to him, the Lord opens up the home of Titus Justice for a house church. Crispus becomes a dear, close friend of Paul's. We read about him in other letters. And he becomes a disciple of Jesus too. And so does his whole family. God is constantly giving Paul the partnerships he needs. But in unexpected and painful ways. If Paul hadn't been beaten up in the synagogue, these other relationships may not have formed. We wouldn't have a house church there that develops. If Paul had received more financial support in the beginning of his time in Corinth, he wouldn't have been able to partner and live and work with Priscilla and Aquila the way that he did. If Priscilla and Aquila hadn't been driven out of Rome because of persecution, they would not have showed up in Corinth right before Paul did at just the right time. God shows up in partnerships. But here's where the punchline really lies. The Lord says to Paul, through all this, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Not only does God show up in partnerships, he shows up with his very presence. God is a God who shows up. He always has been and he always will be. The question for us today is, will we be those who hear his voice when it comes? Will we be those who turn from our worldly ways? Will we be those who take a humble posture? towards correction and discipling? Will we be those who decide to be truly vulnerable even when others hurt us? Because I believe we want to be those people. I want to be that kind of person. I know you want to be that kind of person. But when push comes to shove and we're feeling rejected, forgotten, and mistreated, we, if we're honest, are ready to give up on others. When push comes to shove, we are ready to callous our hearts and tell them that their blood is on their own heads and I am innocent of it. But trust me when I say that the last words of Jesus, he meant. That he meant it when he said, I will be with you always. Surely I will be with you always. And Jesus, as he was beaten, bruised and abused, when he was rejected by the very people that he fed, who sung his praise and saw him heal. Some of those people made up the crowd that condemned him to death, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. 
Jesus was rejected even by his best friend, the one he said he would build his church on. Jesus understands rejection and abuse. And yet when the time comes, he does not open his mouth. He does not leave us. He does not tell us that our blood is on our own heads. Rather, Jesus takes our blood on his head. He takes on the crown of thorns that we ought to have worn. His blood is poured out for our sake. He is pierced for our transgressions. Jesus faces the ultimate rejection, yet he does not give up. He sojourns up to Calvary, takes on death, and he defeats it. And when he's raised to new life, after all the rejection we have given him, after all the times we have hardened our hearts towards him, after all the times we have closed our ears to the ways he is trying to lead us, after all the times we have closed our eyes to our neighbors in need, Jesus does not take his presence away from us. In fact, he sends it. He sees us in our mistakes, in our sin, in our junk, and he speaks to us saying, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Mm. And it's through the voice and presence of Jesus that we are able to persevere through hardship too. That we are able to repent from our sins. That we are able to soften our hearts and become vulnerable once more and not give up speaking. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. 20th century martyrs, Felipe and Mary Bereda, wrote, We discovered that faith is not expecting that the Lord will miraculously give us whatever we ask, or feeling the security that we will not be killed, that everything will turn out as we wanted. We learn that faith is putting ourselves in his hands, whatever happens, good or bad, he will help us somehow. That was spoken by martyrs. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And I have four practices for us today. To not be afraid, for God is with us this week. The first practice is partnerships. Partnerships. Ask God who he has placed in your life unexpectedly for such a time as this. I promise you they're there. Yeah. Now I see Jack and Avery's friendship. And I think that they have a bromance that God has intended. <laughs> I say that in the best way. I think God has put them in the same place at the same time for a reason. Because they needed one another as friends. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing it. It is so encouraging to me. The second practice I have for us this week is vulnerability. To place yourself in the trust of these partners in gospel life. And vulnerability is not just being open about what's going on in your life. That is just honesty, which is also good and important. You need to be honest, but that's not vulnerability. That's just honesty. Vulnerability is a soldier taking off his or her armor and walking into the line of fire, trusting that his or her comrades will take care of them. It is taking off your armor and putting yourself in harm's way. Opening yourself up to danger and trusting. Entrusting yourself to those you love and who love you. And in this, share your darkness, your emotions, your hurt and your sins with one another. And meet one another with grace and correction. Covered in unconditional love. 
This is how we persevere with and for each other. And the third practice is evangelize. Share your faith with one of these partners this week. Do not stop speaking. There are many of the Lord's chosen people in this city. Amen. And we have a perfect opportunity with our friends from Baltimore who are visiting this week. Yes. They wanted to come and share their faith on our campuses. Let us be those who find partners in them and walk beside them side by side through rejection. And the fourth practice is presence. Above all, you must abide in Jesus Christ, for he is with you. But do you see him and hear him and feel him? He will comfort you and reassure you, but you must be in a space where you can actually, and you actually want to hear what he has to say. We've got to spend time with him. We've got to abide in our Lord. We must have space for him to speak. And in so doing, we'll become those who do not fear, but who keep on speaking. We'll become those who are entrusting ourselves to the Lord who shows up again and again. We will become a community of believers from whom the Holy Spirit radiates. We will become a city on a hill that gives light and blessing to all our neighbors. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Amen. To God be the glory.